Chapter Eleven, Part Two of the Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Eleven: The Immortality of the Soul. The conception of the soul as a substance is far from clear in many psychologists. Sometimes it is regarded as an immaterial entity of a peculiar character in an abstract and idealistic sense, sometimes in a concrete and realistic sense, and sometimes in a confused tertium quid between the two. If we adhere to the monistic idea of substance, which we develop in chapter 12, and which takes it to be the simplest element of our whole world system, we find energy and matter inseparably associated in it we must therefore distinguish in the substance of the soul the characteristic psychic energy which is all we perceive sensation presentation volition etc and the psychic matter which is the indispensable basis of its activity that is the living protoplasm thus in the higher animals the matter of the soul is a part of the nervous system in the lower nerveless animals and plants it is a part of their multicellular protoplasmic body and in the unicellular protists it is a part of their protoplasmic cell body in this way we are brought once more to the psychic organs and to an appreciation of the fact that these material organs are indispensable for the action of the soul but the soul itself is actual it is the sum total of their physiological functions however the idea of a specific soul substance found in the dualistic philosophers who admit such a thing is very different from this they conceive the immortal soul to be material yet invisible and essentially different from the visible body which it inhabits thus invisibility comes to be regarded as a most important attribute of the soul some in fact compare the soul with ether and regard it like ether as an extremely subtle light and highly elastic material an imponderable agency that fills the intervals between the ponderable particles of the living organism others compare the soul with the wind and so give it a gaseous nature and it is this simile which first found favor with primitive peoples and led in time to the familiar dualistic conception when a man died the body remained as a lifeless corpse but the immortal soul flew out of it with the last breath the comparison of the human soul with physical ether as a qualitatively similar idea has assumed a more concrete shape in recent times through the great progress of optics and electricity especially in the last decade for these sciences have taught us a good deal about the energy of ether and enabled us to formulate certain conclusions as to the material character of this all-pervading agency as i intend to describe these important discoveries later on i shall do no more at present than briefly point out that they render the notion of an etheric soul absolutely untenable such an etheric soul that is a psychic substance which is similar to physical ether and which like ether passes between the ponderable elements of the living protoplasm or the molecules of the brain cannot possibly account for the individual life of the soul neither the mystic notions of that kind which were warmly discussed about the middle of the century 
nor the attempts of modern neo-vitalists to put their mystical vital force on a line with physical ether call for refutation any longer much more widespread and still much respected is the view which ascribes a gaseous nature to the substance of the soul the comparison of human breath with the wind is a very old one they were originally considered to be identical and were both given the same name the animos and psyche of the greeks and the anima and spiritus of the romans were originally all names for a breath of wind they were transferred from this to the breath of man after a time this living breath was identified with the vital force and finally it came to be regarded as the soul itself or in a narrower sense as its highest manifestation the spirit from that the imagination went on to derive the mystic notion of individual spirits these also are still usually conceived as aeriform beings though they are credited with the physiological functions of an organism and they have been photographed in certain well-known spiritist circles experimental physics has succeeded during the last decade of the century in reducing all gaseous bodies to a liquid most of them also to a solid condition nothing more is needed than special apparatus which exerts a violent pressure on the gases at a very low temperature by this process not only the atmospheric elements oxygen hydrogen and nitrogen but even compound gases such as carbonic acid gas and gaseous aggregates like the atmosphere have been changed from gaseous to liquid form in this way the invisible substances have become visible to all and in a certain sense tangible with this transformation the mystic nimbus which formerly veiled the character of the gas in popular estimation as an invisible body that wrought visible effects has entirely disappeared if then the substance of the soul were really gaseous it should be possible to liquefy it by the application of a high pressure at a low temperature we could then catch the soul as it is breathed out at the moment of death condense it and exhibit it in a bottle as immortal fluid fluidum animae immortale by a further lowering of temperature and increase of pressure it might be possible to solidify it to produce soul snow the experiment has not yet succeeded if athanatism were true if indeed the human soul were to live for all eternity we should have to grant the same privilege to the souls of the higher animals at least to those of the nearest related mammals apes dogs etc for man is not distinguished from them by a special kind of soul or by any peculiar and exclusive psychic function but only by a higher degree of psychic activity a superior stage of development in particular consciousness the function of the association of ideas thought and reason has reached a higher level in many men by no means in all than in most of the animals yet this difference is far from being so great as is popularly supposed and it is much slighter in every respect than the corresponding difference between the higher and the lower animal souls or even the difference between the highest and the lowest stages of the human soul itself if we ascribe personal immortality to man 
we are bound to grant it also to the higher animals it is therefore quite natural that we should find this belief in the immortality of the animal soul among many ancient and modern peoples we even meet it sometimes to-day in many thoughtful men who postulate an immortal life for themselves and have at the same time a thorough empirical knowledge of the psychic life of the animals i once knew an old head forester who being left a widower and without children at an early age had lived alone for more than thirty years in a noble forest of east prussia his only companions were one or two servants with whom he exchanged merely a few necessary words and a great pack of different kinds of dogs with which he lived in perfect psychic communion through many years of training this keen observer and friend of nature had penetrated deep into the individual souls of his dogs and he was as convinced of their personal immortality as he was of his own some of his most intelligent dogs were in his impartial and objective estimation at a higher stage of psychic development than his old stupid maid and the rough wrinkled manservant any unprejudiced observer who will study the conscious and intelligent psychic activity of a fine dog for a year and follow attentively the physiological processes of the thought judgment and reason will have to admit that it has just as valid a claim to immortality as man himself the proofs of the immortality of the soul which have been adduced for the last two thousand years and are indeed still credited with some validity have their origin for the most part not in an effort to discover the truth but in an alleged necessity of emotion that is in imagination and poetic conceit as kant puts it the immortality of the soul is not an object of pure reason but a postulate of practical reason but we must set practical reason entirely aside together with all the exigencies of emotion or of moral education etc when we enter upon an honest and impartial pursuit of truth for we shall only attain it by the work of pure reason starting from empirical data and capable of logical analysis we have to say the same of athanatism as of theism both are creations of poetic mysticism and of transcendental faith not of rational science when we come to analyze all the different proofs that have been urged for the immortality of the soul we find that not a single one of them is of a scientific character not a single one is consistent with the truths we have learnt in the last few decades from the physiological psychology and the theory of descent the theological proof that a personal creator has breathed an immortal soul generally regarded as a portion of the divine soul into man is a pure myth the cosmological proof that the moral order of the world demands the eternal duration of the human soul is a baseless dogma the teleological proof that the higher destiny of man involves the perfecting of his defective earthly soul beyond the grave rests on a false anthropism the moral proof that the defects and the unsatisfied desires of earthly existence must be fulfilled by compensative justice on the other side of eternity is nothing more than a pious wish the ethnological proof that the belief in immortality 
like the belief in god is an innate truth common to all humanity is an error in fact the ontological proof that the soul being a simple immaterial and indivisible entity cannot be involved in the corruption of death is based on an entirely erroneous view of the psychic phenomena it is a spiritualistic fallacy all these and similar proofs of athanatism are in a parlous condition they are definitely annulled by the scientific criticism of the last few decades the extreme importance of the subject leads us to oppose to these untenable proofs of immortality a brief exposition of the sound scientific arguments against it the physiological argument shows that the human soul is not an independent immaterial substance but like the soul of all the higher animals merely a collective title for the sum total of man's cerebral functions and these are just as much determined by physical and chemical processes as any of the other vital functions and just as amenable to the law of substance the histological argument is based on the extremely complicated microscopic structure of the brain it shows us the true elementary organs of the soul in the ganglionic cells the experimental argument proves that the various functions of the soul are bound up with certain special parts of the brain and cannot be exercised unless these are in a normal condition if the areas are destroyed their function is extinguished and this is especially applicable to the organs of thought the four central instruments of mental activity the pathological argument is the complement of the physiological when certain parts of the brain the centers of speech sight hearing etc are destroyed by sickness their activity speech vision hearing etc disappears in this way nature herself makes the decisive physiological experiment the ontogenetic argument puts before us the facts of the development of the soul in the individual we see how the child soul gradually unfolds its various powers the youth presents them in full bloom the mature man shows their ripe fruit in old age we see the gradual decay of the psychic powers corresponding to the senile degeneration of the brain the phylogenetic argument derives its strength from paleontology and the comparative anatomy and physiology of the brain cooperating with and completing each other these sciences prove to the hilt that the human brain and consequently its function the soul has been evolved step by step from that of the mammal and still further back from that of the lower vertebrate these inquiries which might be supplemented by many other results of modern science prove the old dogma of the immortality of the soul to be absolutely untenable in the twentieth century it will not be regarded as a subject of serious scientific research but will be left wholly to transcendental faith the critique of pure reason shows this treasured faith to be a mere superstition like the belief in a personal god which generally accompanies it yet even today millions of believers not only of the lower uneducated masses but even of the most cultured classes look on this superstition as their dearest possession and their most priceless treasure 
it is therefore necessary to enter more deeply into the subject and assuming it to be true to make a critical inquiry into its practical value it soon becomes apparent to the impartial critic that this value rests for the most part on fantasy on the want of clear judgment and consecutive thought it is my firm and honest conviction that a definite abandonment of these athanatist delusions would involve no painful loss but an inestimable positive gain for humanity man's emotional craving clings to the belief in immortality for two main reasons firstly in the hope of securing better conditions of life beyond the grave and secondly in the hope of seeing once more the dear and loved ones whom death has torn from us as for the first hope it corresponds to a natural feeling of the justice of compensation which is quite correct subjectively but has no objective validity whatever we make our claim for an indemnity for the unnumbered defects and sorrows of our earthly existence without the slightest real prospect or guarantee of receiving it we long for an eternal life in which we shall meet no sadness and no pain but an unbounded peace and joy the pictures that most men form of this blissful existence are extremely curious the immaterial soul is placed in the midst of grossly material pleasures the imagination of each believer paints the enduring splendor according to his personal taste the american indian whose athanatism schiller has so well depicted trusts to find in his paradise the finest hunting grounds with innumerable hordes of buffaloes and bears the eskimo looks forward to sun-tipped icebergs with an inexhaustible supply of bears seals and other polar animals the effeminate singalese frames his paradise on the wonderful island paradise of ceylon with its noble gardens and forests adding that there will be unlimited supplies of rice and curry of cocoa-nuts and other fruit always at hand the Mohammedan Arab believes it will be a place of shady gardens of flowers, watered by cool springs, and filled with lovely maidens. The Catholic fisherman of Sicily looks forward to a daily superabundance of the most valuable fishes and the finest macaroni, and eternal absolution from all his sins, which he can go on committing in his eternal home. The Evangelical of North Europe longs for an immense Gothic cathedral, in which he can chant the praises of the Lord of hosts for all eternity. In a word, each believer really expects his eternal life to be a direct continuation of his individual life on earth, only in a much improved and enlarged edition. We must lay special stress on the thoroughly materialistic character of Christian athanatism, which is closely connected with the absurd dogma of the resurrection of the body. As thousands of paintings of famous masters inform us, the bodies that have risen again with the souls that have been born again walk about in heaven just as they did on this veil of tears they see god with their eyes they hear his voice with their ears they sing hymns to his praise with their larynx and so forth in fine the modern inhabitants of the christian paradise have the same dual character of body and soul the same organs of an earthly body as our ancient ancestors had in odin's hall in valhalla as the immortal turks and arabs have in mohammed's lovely gardens 
as the old greek demigods and heroes had in the enjoyment of nectar and ambrosia at the table of zeus but however gloriously we may depict this eternal life in paradise it remains endless in duration do we realize what eternity means the uninterrupted continuance of our individual life forever the profound legend of the wandering jew the fruitless search for rest of the unhappy ahasuerus should teach us to appreciate such an eternal life at its true value the best we can desire after a courageous life spent in doing good according to our light is the eternal peace of the grave lord give them an eternal rest any impartial scholar who is acquainted with geological calculations of time and has reflected on the long series of millions of years the organic history of the earth has occupied must admit that the crude notion of an eternal life is not a comfort but a fearful menace to the best of men only want of clear judgment and consecutive thought can dispute it the best and most plausible ground for athanatism is found in the hope that immortality will reunite us to the beloved friends who have been prematurely taken from us by some grim mischance but even this supposed good fortune proves to be an illusion on closer inquiry and in any case it would be greatly marred by the prospect of meeting the less agreeable acquaintances and the enemies who have troubled our existence here below even the closest family ties would involve many a difficulty there are plenty of men who would gladly sacrifice all the glories of paradise if it meant the eternal companionship of their better half and their mother-in-law it is more than questionable whether henry the eighth would like the prospect of living eternally with his six wives or augustus the strong of poland who had a hundred mistresses and three hundred and fifty-two children as he was on good terms with the vicar of christ he must be assumed to be in paradise in spite of his sins and in spite of the fact that his mad military ventures cost the lives of more than a hundred thousand saxons another insoluble difficulty faces the athanatist when he asks in what stage of their individual development the disembodied souls will spend their eternal life will the newborn infant develop its psychic powers in heaven under the same hard conditions of the struggle for life which educate man here on earth will the talented youth who has fallen in the wholesale murder of war unfold his rich unused mental powers in valhalla will the feeble childish old man who has filled the world with the fame of his deeds and the ripeness of his age live forever in mental decay or will he return to an earlier stage of development if the immortal souls in olympus are to live in a condition of rejuvenescence and perfectness than both the stimulus to the formation of and the interest in personality disappear for them not less impossible in the light of pure reason do we find the anthropistic myth of the last judgment and the separation of the souls of men into two great groups of which one is destined for the eternal joys of paradise and the other for the eternal torments of hell and that from a personal god who is called the father of love and it is this universal father who has himself created the conditions of heredity and adaptation 
in virtue of which the elect on the one side were bound to pursue the path towards eternal bliss and the luckless poor and miserable on the other hand were driven into the paths of the damned a critical comparison of the countless and manifold fantasies which belief in immortality has produced during the last few thousand years in the different races and religions yields a most remarkable picture an intensely interesting presentation of it based on most extensive original research may be found in adalbert svoboda's distinguished works the illusion of the soul and forms of faith however absurd and inconsistent with modern knowledge most of these myths seem to be they still play an important part and as postulates of practical reason they exercise a powerful influence on the opinions of individuals and on the destiny of races the idealist and spiritualist philosophy of the day will freely grant that these prevalent materialistic forms of belief in immortality are untenable it will say that the refined idea of an immaterial soul a platonic idea or a transcendental psychic substance must be substituted for them but modern realism can have nothing whatever to do with these incomprehensible notions they satisfy neither the mind's feeling of causality nor the yearning of our emotions if we take a comprehensive glance at all that modern anthropology psychology and cosmology teach with regard to athanatism we are forced to this definite conclusion the belief in the immortality of the human soul is a dogma which is in hopeless contradiction with the most solid empirical truths of modern science End of chapter eleven part two Recording by Nathan Dickey, Ashland, Oregon, journeymanheretic.blogspot.com.